welcome to The Buzz, a bank automation news podcast. My name is Whitney McDonald, and I'm the deputy editor of Bank Automation News. Joining me today is Chief Executive of Pinwheel, Kurt Lynn, and Pinwheel Advisor and former Deputy Director of the CFPB, Raj Date. The two discuss today's macroeconomy and the importance of direct deposits ahead of open banking policymaking, which is in process. So I'm Kurt Lynn. I am uh, the co-founder and CEO of Pinwheel. We are the leading connectivity platform uh, for connecting payroll accounts to both fintech and financial institution apps. And uh, Whitney, thanks for having us. Um, I'm Raj Date. Uh, by way of background, I've been an executive within, a consultant for, an investment banker to, a regulator of, and now an investor in financial services firms of more or less every variety, banks, finance companies, insurance companies, asset managers, um, spent time at McKinsey and Capital One and on Wall Street, and then did a stint in public policy um, uh, as the head of sort of the policy and research shop at the CFPB in the early days. Then when Elizabeth Warren left to run for the Senate, I stepped into her role as the acting head of the agency and then stayed on as the deputy director for about a year, uh, finally leaving in 2013. I am not a natural number two. That's some self-learning I've had uh, through through the, through that course. Uh, and I ended up starting my own uh, firm in 2013 called Fenway Summer. We are essentially a, think of it as an old-timey merchant banking model focused just on the fintech sector. And by that, I mean, we're willing to be flexible about how we participate in new ideas and innovative people. Um, and, you know, for me, Pinwheel and my collaboration with Kurt and his team uh, allows me to kind of do all those things and in an area of the sector that I think is both simultaneously important and timely. And uh, we can talk a little bit about some of that stuff um, when you'd like. Great. Well, thank you both for, for being here. We really appreciate your time. And I think that this topic here is very timely. And I think that we should kick things off with maybe a discussion of today's macro economy and how it's more important now than ever to offer these direct deposits. So I'll just pass it over to Kurt, maybe to start. Absolutely. So I think, you know, anyone who's been uh, watching the news for the past, I would say six months or so, um, if not a bit, even before that, uh, has heard time and time again that, you know, there is now rising interest rates and now, you know, the market is turning and, you know, like, how do we handle this? What do we do? Does this mean doom and gloom? Or um, is there some kind of light at the end of the tunnel? And I think uh, it's really important to understand that what are the actual implications of rising interest rates and actually understand that even before that, what what we what, what was happening um, with, uh, you know, lower interest rates, right? Because I think that's the kind of the driver of a lot of what we're discussing today. And I think over the past, call it decade plus, where there's been this really strong bull market, um, it's been on the back of really low interest rates driving uh, economic growth across the board. And especially when you talk about investments into uh, innovation, um, there's a lot of, you know, investment dollars going into new technologies, especially in the banking world. And as things are going to tighten up and people become more conscious of risk and making sure that they are managing their businesses effectively, um, I think you start to really understand that uh, it's all about making sure that you are reducing risk and exposure and also um, making sure that you're kind of returning to the fundamentals and the basics that make great businesses great businesses, right? And so especially for uh, banks, I think that is really looking at 
your deposits and making sure that deposit growth is really healthy, right? And so that's where the idea of making sure that your ability to uh, capture direct deposits and making that process really frictionless for your consumers and growing that is more important than ever. And I think there's two key pieces that really underpin this. Uh, one is um, when you think about the CFPB's remarks about uh, driving account portability, um, that is not only making sure that it's really easy for a consumer to be able to move their data from bank to bank, but also move their accounts from bank to bank. Um, one thing that people largely forget is needing to actually move the money that you get paid with, right? It's one thing to be able to say, I can move my data over, but if I still get my paychecks in my old account. I'm still kind of stuck now kind of in this limbo. And so being able to make that really easy is a really important thing. Um, and especially going into this macro, really being uh, able to understand the consumer um, and their income and how it changes is really important to understand the risk and exposure levels that you have uh, as a bank. And so I uh, think those two things are really kind of driving that. And I'll pass it off to Raj because he probably knows a lot more about not only CPB, but kind of the, the larger um, uh, environment that he can speak to. So, Sure. I mean, there's so much to talk about within the... Uh, dynamics in the macro environment today, but let's just focus on on rates a little bit, a little bit more. I mean, first, just the, the raw magnitude of what we're talking about. You know, as recently as uh, you know, the middle of 2021, um, you effectively had short-term rates of nothing, um, and we're sitting here today with the two-year Treasury at something like 425, 450 basis points, a massive and very rapid swing. One of the interesting things to think about is. Well, who gets the benefit of that exactly? And traditionally, traditional commercial banks are have so-called asset-sensitive balance sheets, which in practical terms means that as interest rates climb, they reprice their deposits upward much more slowly, which means that they capture that the benefit of the lag between the time that their assets, their loans are generating higher interest spreads but they're not really paying their depositors anymore. They kind of take their time to reprice upwards as you or I or anyone else would do. But one interesting question is whether or not changes in technology can allow consumers and small businesses who in general um, don't get the full benefit of rising rates off of their bank deposits, uh, can changes in technology such as the products and services that Kurt is offering, allow them to capture more of that surplus as rates change. Um, and to me, that's worth uh, the effort to try and figure out because, you know, it is a multi, multi uh, billion dollar question per quarter uh, and, and therefore really worth, really worth investing the time and energy. Um, and this within, the stakes are pretty high, right? Because think about for the, the banking se sector, for any financial services firm, you simultaneously have rate shocks that have potentially unpredictable impacts on the overall earnings trajectory of any business. And you have, to be candid, a credit environment that can only get worse. I mean, credit conditions have been astonishingly benign since basically since the end of the financial crisis. And that is going to end, period, full stop. Like it, it has to. And uh, that's going to create a competitive dynamic where really paying attention, like the firms that really can serve their customers well and to do so efficiently and with the benefit of technology um, are going to be the winners. And the stakes couldn't be higher and they couldn't be higher than right now, in my opinion. 
Thank you both for, for setting the stage there and talking through the macro economy, where the rates stand today and what that all means. I think that Raj started talking a little bit about um, where technology fits in and what this means and answering those questions um, for, for the banks today. I think it would be a good pivot to talk through what Pinwheel is and where it fits into this puzzle. Yeah, absolutely. So when you think about what Pinwheel does in the simplest terms, we provide a product that makes it really easy for consumers to connect their payroll accounts to any app, right? And so once you have that account connected, whether it's an ADP account or a Workday account or what have you, it allows uh, Pinwheel to do two main things. One is gather information about who someone is, how much money they make, where they work, and share it with the, the bank or the FI that needs that information, whether it's to verify them for a loan or what have you. And the second thing that we do is we make it really easy to update their direct deposit settings, right? And the problem that we're solving there is when you think about switching a direct deposit, I don't know if you ever tried to do this yourself, uh, Whitney, but it is, you have to either go, uh, you know, submit a paper form to your HR team and then just cross your fingers and hope they actually process it, which more often than not, it somehow gets kind of lost into the ether. Or you are trying to self-serve on some, you know, clunky portal that is really hard to navigate and is really confusing and oftentimes leads to errors, right? And so our goal is to say, can we take all of that friction out of the process and make it as simple as just clicking once one or twice, or once or twice, right? And um, not only do we do that, but we also embed that at the point of highest intent. So, you know, during the account onboarding or creation process, right? So you sign up for a bank account, you say, hey, you created your account, go ahead and now fund it with your direct deposits using Pinwheel and make that a really seamless process for the consumer all the way through. Uh, you know, if you think about the... The idea of making deposit switching or account switching um, cheaper, easier, more streamlined, it fits pretty nicely with what are the stated anyway goals of the administration broadly and many of the financial services regulators, probably most significantly the CFPB. Um, I would characterize a lot of the sort of economic thinking um, within the financial regulators and within the White House as, as being uh, kind of summed up by competitive markets work. They work to fill market niches and create benefit for both suppliers and consumers. And you can rely on markets to work except when they don't. And they don't when you have present any one of a handful of market failures or obstacles to efficient market functioning. Things like you know, agency problem or market power imbalances or information asymmetry or critically switching costs to the extent there are transaction costs that that uh, put sand in the gears of uh, customers moving their business. Well, then you should not affect, uh, expect the market to function as efficiently and to lower costs and prices as quickly as it otherwise would. Um, as a consequence, it shouldn't be too surprising that a director of the CFPB like Rohit Chopra, who has spent basically his entire career around consumer protection issues and competition issues to be laser focused on this. I would argue it's probably the through line of the vast majority of the policy agenda at the CFPB today. Um, and as a consequence, I think that 
uh, an offering like the one that Kirk is describing, particularly in a rate environment that really amplifies the economic gains and losses associated with being able to switch accounts, um, it becomes both something that matters in, in dollar terms and is in very much in alignment with the broader policy agenda and direction, I think, of the financial regulators. Great, thank you. And and yeah, thanks for bringing that up to the, the main focus of the CFPB right now and how this is in line, or pinwheel is in line with that that main uh, kind of bigger picture focus of the of the Bureau. Um, wondering if we can talk through a specific use case or example of how to, or who has been using pinwheel and what that's looked like. Yeah, absolutely. So I think one of the best examples we can share is, you know, one of our valued customers is uh, Cash App, uh, Block's consumer um, offering. And what we help them do is really make the process of not just switching direct deposit, but I would say more broadly, um, the entire process of being getting up and running on their banking product seamless, right? And so what largely happens is they're either, you know, it's a, for those who don't know, Cash Up is a peer-to-peer, -peer, uh, you know, payments network first and foremost, where you can, you know, pay your, your buddy back for, uh, you know, whatever something that they did. And that's largely how they're able to kind of get folks uh, familiar with the product. And then from there, they say, you know, if you're already having money come in from friends, why not also sign up for a bank account? And the big uh, draw for them, I think, is largely the draw for a lot of neobanks as well, more broadly, which is um, there are a good chunk of folks in the country. I'm sure Raj probably knows the number much better than I do. Because um, it always seems to be kind of changing every time I look at the, the latest stats. Um, there's a lot of folks who are either unbanked or underbanked, right? Um, or they are banked, but they are not being served well, right? They're subject to a bevy of fees like uh, having an account minimum, ATM fees, et cetera. And so there's a real value and draw for um, these like newer neobanks coming in to not charge a bunch of fees and make it really easy for them to actually enter uh the banking world in a way that is actually on terms that will not put them in a position where they will be able to succeed in the long run right and so it's a big part of that uh what we're doing is once that customer creates bank account in that same flow they say hey now that you create an account why don't you go and fund it with your direct deposits and at that point pinwheels experience pops up they just select either their payroll provider or where they work and then we make it easy to say okay do you want to switch all of your paycheck, some of your paycheck. And once they confirm that, everything else happens in the back end. So we try to make it really as seamless as possible. Um, another example I can also share is when you talk about the direct deposit piece, that's one piece of oftentimes a larger offering. So a good number of our customers also offer some form of earn wage access. And what that basically means is you have all of these customers who, uh, are working the largely hourly jobs, yet they're not able to get paid for like oh, every like they get paid every two weeks or every month, and so it creates this problem where in between those pay checks they run out of money and then they have to go to a payday lender or some other predatory provider, which is obviously not great for them. And what Earnwage Access has promised but has never really delivered in totality is this ability to actually get someone paid every day. And so what we're finally able to do is say, 
we have direct connections into not only these payroll systems, but also time and attendance systems as well. So we can say, we know that, you know, Kurt has clocked in and clocked out of his shift today at Chipotle. We also know that he is, as of this very moment, still actively employed. So you can reduce the levels of fraud and, and other uh, bad actors and put those together and say, um, well, actually the third piece, which is with their direct deposit, we know that we can claw back whatever we forward to them when they do get paid in two weeks. You can put all those three pieces together and now you have earned wage access as a service or as a feature. And so we've been working with our customers to embed that into their apps as part of more of a holistic offering as well. Now you've started kind of touching on it. Can we talk through that data that's being collected so that FIs can have a better understanding of what the clients look like, whether it's ahead of a default or avoiding that at all? Can you talk through that? Yeah, totally. And I'm sure uh, Raj has a lot to add to this as well. Uh, I mean, Raj has mentioned it earlier, the credit landscape is only going to get worse, right? I think like there has been a lot of uh, focus on let's just grow loan volumes as quickly as possible over the past few years. And now there's kind of a, a shift towards let's really focus on risk and exposure and make sure that's minimized as well as like uh, collections and loss rates and what have you. Right. And I think a big piece of that starts with having the data to understand what is really going on with this consumer. Right. And so one of the things that we've been really excited about is by connecting someone's payroll account, you can see in real time their income and employment data. Right. So you can start to see things like, hey, someone is, you know, unfortunately they've been furloughed or worse yet, they've been terminated. It actually doesn't benefit uh, you as the, uh, as the lender to just sit there and don't do anything because naturally they're going to eventually default. It's much better to be able to get ahead of it and say, okay, if we can see this coming down the pipe, can we offer them some sort of loan modification or some type of relief so that we don't put this person further into you know financial duress and at the same time protect our investments and our assets so that when they do get back on their feet, we can actually still, frankly, have a great relationship with that customer and also protect our balance sheet versus having to sell that debt for pennies on the dollar to someone, to a, a collector, right? And so that's one example of how having real-time data, especially upstream, makes a really big difference for the kind of credit landscape as a whole. I'm sure Roger and Maury can add to that. Yeah, maybe just a little bit of, um, you know, sort of longitudinal history on some of, some of these issues. So when I first got involved in the credit card industry, uh, embarrassingly, I guess you'd say more than 20 years ago now, the state of the art in terms of decisioning for both consumers and increasingly for small businesses was using log regression models based on credit bureau attributes. And it, you know, sort of worked except when it, you know, didn't, uh, you know, there are plenty of people who don't have enough data on the, at the credit, at the credit bureaus uh, to be able to make a decision based on those models. And it becomes a little bit of a chicken, the egg issue is you don't get data at the credit bureaus until you have some credit upon which you are paying. So, um, it really was sort of a, a stubborn problem in the business of consumer credit uh, extension. Um, and so there had always been, you know, sort of this notion that, well, gosh, if the data were better structured or if processing speeds were much higher, then I would be able to use different methodologies with a wider and more diverse set of data to be able to serve a wider population of customers at, you know, a price that seems fair. Um, but until relatively recently, all of that was just sort of a lot of hand waving. And yes, maybe it might work someday. That's different now. Like it is no longer 
open for debate. Uh, machine learning um, approaches using wider data sets do in fact, either in conjunction or standalone, allow you to make better decisions in terms of credit extension. And I would argue also with respect to loss mitigation efforts than traditional methods alone. Um, but it does raise, I think, a series of uh, policy questions beyond just sort of the threshold of, does this work? Um, because the answer to that is yes, it works to use different uh, uh, broader data sources such as the ones that Kurt is talking about to make decisions. But it creates two other kind of policy questions that we need to wrestle to the ground. One is, well, who gets to decide whether or not you're gonna use other data to make decisions about me? Is it my decision? Is it the financial institution's decision? Is it somebody else's decision? Um, and then number two, um, if it matters and we can figure out who gets to decide, um, what if something goes wrong? Uh, last time I checked, things go wrong from time to time. And if something matters uh, and if something then goes wrong, how are you going to fix it? Do, do I have a right to have it fixed or what? Uh, which is why I think that, you know, Pinwheel's decision to operate as a CRA, which, you know, almost definitionally means that they have to be attentive to the remediation of errors if they occur, like that matters. And it's very difficult for me to imagine a world in which the use of wide new data sets, either on an opt-in basis or otherwise, um, doesn't, like, why shouldn't we get the same consumer protections in that arena as we do with credit bureau data? So I think I think that's the world in which we are going to be moving, or at least I hope so. And to add to that, I would also say, like, the, the example that I like to give to kind of, like, humanize the problem is, you know, we've, we've already seen within our own data sets today that you have, like, a teacher or a nurse who has been in the same job for four or five years, and their income is super stable, right? Like never really changes and it makes them a really reliable borrowers. And so they actually end up performing, even though they have a FICO of 550, end up performing much closer to a 750, right? But the uh, any lender who's looking purely at a FICO score can't see that. And so I think, you know, we actually recently did, uh, we, we commissioned a survey um, and we actually saw that, you know, nearly eight in 10 respondents um, said that they were, you know, that credit scores should not be the only criteria for getting a loan, which, you know, is not surprising. Um, and uh, nearly seven out of 10 said they would like and would willingly give their uh, income and employment data to contribute to their credit worthiness because they realize how much of an impact that it would make as far as helping them unlock better financial products as well. And so I think all of that kind of feeds into this idea, especially as we see folks embrace um, broader data sets to actually be able to build better businesses, frankly. It's really hard to sit here and say that we, you know, gather data on behalf of the consumer and share it with uh, the service provider. Um, and then also try to sit there and also and claim that, you know, we're not responsible for what happens with the data. Right. And so it, for us, it became not only something that we really strongly believed in, but also I think we took a stand on because the majority of other data providers in the market don't take this stance, right? Um, but it's just really hard to sit there and say, hey, like if something, if any sort of adverse action comes of this data that we are you know, furnishing to service providers, the consumer needs to be able to flag that and say, hey, like, this isn't right, or this is like in some way inaccurate, and it needs to be our job to make sure that we handle that well. And I think that kind of speaks to more broadly um, Pinwell's mission, which is 
you know, empowering consumers to use their data um, to unlock uh, better financial products. And in turn, being that infrastructure layer that allows the leading innovators in financial services, whether you're uh, a big bank or whether you are a startup, um, to actually leverage that data and leverage those access to direct deposits to build the parts of the future. Yeah, and you know, I, obviously I spend most of my uh, time investing time and money in new ideas in financial services. And I can, uh, I can attest to the fact that it is possible to be totally right about the future and be totally wrong about the timing with which that future arrives. Um, and being wrong and being too early, both are sort of tantamount to losing all your time. So, and losing all your money. So not a great outcome. And so I think it's especially critical as Kurt and his team uh, continue to move forward to take advantage of this moment in the marketplace, because uh, there are at least three catalysts making this set of ideas and this set of technology and this set of offerings, especially salient right now. You have the value to customers and the value to institutions of these technologies being dramatically higher today than arguably they were a year ago. Why? Because rates are higher and therefore moving your account is worth more to you. And the credit environment is worsening. And therefore for a financial services firm, investing more energy in innovative ideas to be able to better decision things is worth more than when basically nobody was ever going bad um, as recently as 18 months ago. Um, so value is higher. Because this data works to make better decisions, when there are problems with that data, the risk is higher. So the value is higher, the risk is higher, and there is a an extant, current, ongoing rulemaking effort uh, at the CFPB in the form of uh, Dodd-Frank Section 1033 rulemaking that has the potential to be able to make more safe and catalyze the development of this use of data in a fair and controllable way um, that just so happens to be happening exactly right now. You've been listening to The Buzz, a bank automation news podcast. Please follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. And as a reminder, you can rate this podcast on your platform of choice. Thank you for your time and be sure to visit us at bankautomationnews.com for more automation news.